Good morning. Open up your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 12. We in Acts chapter 12 today. As you're turning there, my name is Mitchell Slater. I'm one of the elders here at River Oaks Community Church. I want to welcome you, especially if you're visiting. It is so good to get to worship with you. And it is my privilege, privilege to open up God's Word today. So our, uh, our passage is Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. I'm going to read through verse uh, 24 so we can get the whole, the, the whole narrative together. Um, and it starts off with the phrase, about that time. So he's saying the same time as what came before, which if you remember from last week, was a description of the church in Antioch. And in chapter 11 and chapter 13, we see the church in Antioch flourishing and thriving and doing well. And then in between, in the middle, in chapter 12, we see at that same time the church in Jerusalem uh, was not doing quite as well. So let's read Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 24. This is the word of God. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. <clears throat> when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. <laughs> now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries 
and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. May it be so today. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, asking that your word would multiply and increase today. Pray that you would encourage our hearts and build us up in our faith. Pray that the lost would be saved and come to know you even today, Father. And God, I pray that we would give you all the glory as we hear from your word. Amen. Resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. John Knox, the Scottish preacher, pastor, and reformer, he first spoke those words in the 16th century. I think our passage today shows us the truth of those words in the first century, and we desperately need to hear those words today in the 21st century. Now, when I start talking about resisting tyranny, some of you might be getting nervous and some of you might be getting excited. (laughs) John Davis, I see you. (laughs) We're Americans and we're Appalachians, right? So we don't like tyrants. But I want to slow us down and ask two fundamental questions as we begin. If it is indeed true that we must... Obey God by resisting tyranny, and I believe it is. We have to ask, what is tyranny, and how do we resist? What is a tyrant, and what does our resistance look like? So first, what what is tyranny? The early Christians, they were dealing with Herod. He was laying violent hands on the church. He was a true tyrant. And there are several Herods in the Bible. It can get a little bit confusing. So there's Herod the Great. He was uh, the Herod from the Christmas story, the one who went on a murderous hunt for Jesus that led to all the two-year-old and under boys uh, being slaughtered. He had a son named Herod Antipas. This is the Herod uh, that we see later in the Gospels. Jesus called him a fox. Uh, John the Baptist publicly rebuked him. John the Baptist subsequently got beheaded because he did that. Um, He is also the Herod who was at Jesus' trial at his crucifixion. But then Herod the Great had a grandson by the name of Herod Agrippa I. And that is the Herod from our passage today in Acts 12, the one who executed James and attempted the same with Peter. To sum it up, when you hear the name Herod, you should think of bloodthirsty, power-hungry, tyrannical leadership. We should be thankful. 
We should be very thankful that we are not in this same situation. We are not experiencing this kind of violent persecution. We should be grateful to God for the peace and the liberty and the stability that he's given us. At the same time, we need to recognize that there is a growing tyranny in Western culture. There's a rising opposition to the Christian faith. We never want to become the boy who cried wolf, the church who cries persecution, when there is none. But we need to have discernment. We need to know the times in which we're living. We need to understand the spirit of the age. So I want to turn your attention to two important details about Herod in this passage today. One is his pride. His pride and his, his self-deification. He, he wanted to become a god or be treated in a godlike status. That's getting into next week's text a little bit where he goes and gives this speech in verses 20 through 23. And the people shout, the voice of a god and not a man. And he receives that praise. And he's struck down for it. The root of tyranny is always idolatry. The root of tyranny is idolatry. That is, when a human ruler wants to make himself the divine ruler. When an earthly leader wants to become the chief sovereign. When a legitimate limited authority wants to become the highest unlimited authority. And there's an inner tyrant in each one of us. I believe that one of the heresies that confront us today is what I would call statism. Statism. That is the belief that the state, the civil government, is the highest and most ultimate authority we have. In this view, the government becomes your God, the state becomes your savior, and every problem becomes politicized, thus needing a political solution. Now, the Bible clearly shows us that the civil government, civil magistrates, they have both a legitimate role in God's plan and limitations imposed by God's law. They are instituted by God. They are a legitimate but not ultimate authority. Statism, on the other hand, gives the state unlimited authority and calls for our unquestioning, unlimited obedience. After this Herod incident, a few years, a few decades later, another tyrant would come up against the church, which was the Roman emperor himself. All the Christians in that day had to do to get along was take a pinch of incense, cast it into the fire, and say, Caesar is Lord. Three words. They refused. They made the Christian confession that Jesus is Lord, and they paid for that confession with their lives. Those early Christians were respectful towards authority. They sought to be upstanding citizens. They were honorable. But because of their allegiance to Christ, they became dissidents. They became subversive outsiders. They were not attacked because of their disloyalty to Caesar. They were attacked because of their ultimate and undying loyalty to Christ. And those options that are given to them are the same that are before us. Christ or Caesar. Well, we have no king but Christ or no king but Caesar. The second detail I want to point out is in 
uh, verses 2 and 3. Luke says, He, that is Herod, killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Herod didn't care about Christianity. He wasn't going after James and Peter because of his deeply held religious convictions. Herod was a pragmatic, opportunistic politician who didn't mind getting his hands dirty. His violence was a form of political expediency, trying to garner the favor of the people. It was a political stunt. But notice that before this individual tyrant ever started to attack the church, the the people, the culture, had already grown tyrannical and opposed to the message of Christ. A hostile culture will produce hostile leadership. A hostile culture will inevitably produce hostile leadership. We only have to look around us to see that our culture is growing more and more hostile to Christ, to his gospel, his kingdom, his ethics, his people. A few examples from outside of our country. In Victoria, Australia, it is now illegal to pray for the conversion of someone who identifies as LGBTQ. Illegal to pray for their conversion. Just a few months ago in Alberta, Canada, Pastor James Coates spent 35 days in jail simply for holding church services in violation of health codes. You might say, well, that's Australia, that's Canada. Just give it a few months. (laughs) I used to say give it a few years, but the timelines have changed. (laughs) Give it a few months. We've spoken before from this pulpit about the Equality Act, a bill that has passed the U.S. um, House of Representatives now in the Senate that would put extreme pressure on churches and Christian institutions, schools, seminaries, to cave on the Bible's sexual ethic. But even outside of legislation, in the culture we can see this. Several weeks ago, Art mentioned a book called Live Not By Lies uh, by Rod Dreher, which I would suggest to you. Um, And he uses the phrase in there, soft totalitarianism. For this message, I would change it to soft tyranny. Soft tyranny is what you feel in the workplace when you know that living and talking like a Christian will get you in trouble. Soft tyranny is what you're experiencing at your school or your university where you feel like you can't be a faithful Christian, much less just intellectually honest. Soft tyranny is why the equity, diversity, and inclusion initiatives that are said to produce tolerance feel so intolerant. Make no mistake, soft tyranny if left unchecked, will inevitably become hard tyranny. The tyranny of Herod, who put James to death with a sword. And this is why we must obey God and resist tyranny. If we love God and we want to see his name glorified, if we love our neighbors and we want to see them flourish, then we must resist tyranny. But that leads to our second question. How do we resist? What does resistance look like? And this is an extremely important question because what comes to our mind when we hear the word resist might involve armed conflict. And let me make this clear. We as Christians are not violent revolutionaries. Now, there's a place to talk about things like 
uh, the, the lesser magistrate. There's a whole conversation there. But when it comes to the individual Christian and the church, we are reformational, not revolutionary. I'll give you a little sneak peek to the justice training this weekend. I talk about that. The church is reformational, not revolutionary. We are not violent. We don't support violent revolutions, but we support gospel reformations. We are peacemaking, gospel preaching, disciple making reformers. And where do those kind of reformers come from? Where do the type of Christians come from that will enter into the culture boldly proclaiming the gospel of Christ and the lordship of Christ? This is Mother's Day. They come from our homes. Mothers, do you realize the significance of your duty? What you do day in and day out, raising your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord is an act of war. What you do driving in the minivan, around the dinner table, changing diapers, that is preparing boys and girls to become men and women who can grow up and honor God by resisting tyranny and promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are spiritual and they are powerful. And I believe that our passage in Acts 12 gives us three strategies to how we do this, to how we obey God and resist tyrants. Not the only three strategies. There's a, there's a much larger conversation to be had here, but three important strategies that come out of this text. Strategy number one, endurance. We see that in the example of James. Strategy number two, escape, which we see with the example of Peter. And strategy number three, earnest prayer, which you see in the example of the praying church and specifically with Rhoda. So let's begin with strategy one and the example of James. This was James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, one of the sons of thunder. We first met him when Jesus called him to lay down his nets and follow him. And now we see the end of his life where he followed Jesus faithfully to the end. You might be thinking, is this really a strategy? <laughs> James got killed. It doesn't seem like a very good strategy. <laughs> but we are in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of the crucified Lord. And in that kingdom, it turns out it's a pretty good tactic. Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, conquered through sacrifice. He conquered death through dying. He conquered sin by being made sin for us. He conquered the Roman Empire by suffering on a Roman cross. He conquered Satan, the ultimate tyrant, by enduring faithfully unto death. And we are called to follow in his footsteps. Weakness, suffering, and even death. These are God's subversive tactics to sabotage the kingdom of darkness. When we are in conflict with tyranny, we are called to stand fast and hold our ground for the sake of Christ, no matter what comes. We see this in the example of Daniel, 
In his day, the Persian tyrants forbid prayer to anyone but the king. That's statism. So Daniel made sure to open his windows when he prayed to make it clear that he was resisting their tyrannical demands and honoring God, even if it meant death in a den of lions. Think also of the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to bow down before the idol of the Babylonian tyrant Nebuchadnezzar. They resisted that status call to worship and said, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fire of furnace. The burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, so even if we do die, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's what endurance looks like. It looks like facing someone in power over you and showing them by your words and actions that they are not sovereign, God is, and that you will serve God rather than man, even if it costs you something. When you do this, it serves as a witness that Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords, not Caesar, not your boss, not a mere man. Do you want to know if you would endure losing your life for Christ? It's a hard question. If I was put in a situation, would I? Would I lose my life for Christ? I think the way that we can know is, how do we endure now? Do you endure the shame of following Christ now? Do you endure the slander and the name-calling and the loss of reputation now? If we're faithful in little, we'll be faithful in much. Right now, by and large, we are not being called to lay down our lives physically for our Lord. But we are being called to lay down our comforts, our reputations, our respectability, relationships, possible career advancements, and more. Are you willing? Are you willing to obey God, resist tyranny, and accept the results? The call to each one of us is to take up our cross, deny ourselves daily, And follow Christ. That's strategy number one. Endurance. Strategy number two is escape, which we see in the example of Peter's arrest and escape in verses six through eleven. Now, after seeing the good response to James's execution, Herod decides to do the same with Peter. He puts Peter in prison. There's a good chance he knew the story from chapter 5 where Peter was put in prison there and an angel rescued him there. So to stop that from happening again, he assigns a rotating guard of 16 soldiers. Some of them are physically chained to Peter and they put him behind an iron door in a prison. That ought to do the trick. Nope. His execution was stalled by the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. So the night before that was going to end and he was going to be taken out to execution, Peter's sleeping soundly. He's not worried. He's resting in Christ and the eternal hope he has in him. And that'd be a whole sermon in and of itself to be able to just sleep soundly the night before your execution. But he's woken up by an angel. Light fills the room. His chains fell off. The doors open of their own accord. And the guards never wake up. It's a miraculous, God-ordained prison break. 
It was so amazing that Peter thinks he's dreaming until about halfway through. He doesn't even realize this is actually happening. And after Peter reports back to the church, he goes into hiding as a wanted man. That's what we see in verses 17 through 19. He says, all right, tell James about this. That's James, the brother of of our Lord, not the James that died, obviously. And he becomes the de facto leader of the Jerusalem church. And then Peter goes underground as a wanted man. And really, for the most part, except for a few times, he disappears from the book of Acts, and Luke shifts the focus from, from Peter to Paul. But this shows us an important strategy in resisting tyranny, which is the strategy of escape. We should avoid having a persecution complex where we think persecution is a net good for the church that should always be welcomed with open arms. Yes, if and when it comes, we should be prepared, but we should never welcome or extend an invitation to persecution and tyranny. It's not wrong for Christians to flee certain countries or move to different states that are less hostile to the Christian faith. We have people here right now in this room who have done that. If you're experiencing the soft corporate tyranny of the workplace, it's a good thing to try to get on committees or get in leadership positions where you can be a Christian influence on company policy. You can have honest conversation with higher leadership. It's a good thing to pursue entrepreneurship to start businesses that show the world a better way, the way of Christ. Again, I know many of you are doing this. As citizens of a constitutional republic, which is a distinctly Protestant idea, by the way, as citizens, we should do all we can within the legal and political process to promote justice, to advance God's law, and to restrain tyrants, to hold them back. We can resist them by escaping from their clutches. But notice that this wasn't Peter's plan. He was fast asleep. This was a divine deliverance. And in the book of Acts, there's a lot of escapes. They're not always quite this dramatic. If you think back to chapter 9, Paul, they're hunting for him in Damascus, and he escapes through a window down a basket. That seems just more like that was his plan. But God loves to rescue his people. God loves to rescue his people, and he loves to do it at the very last moment, at the last second, at the 11th hour. He loves it when his people have the Red Sea on one side and the Egyptian army on the other at the last minute to split the sea in two. I wonder if that was on Peter's mind. This was at Passover. To use the examples from earlier, God loves to wait for his people to be in the fiery furnace, in the den of lions, and then to rescue them. He loves to watch as the grief of Good Friday and the sorrow of Holy Saturday turn into the joy of Resurrection Sunday. God is a master author who enjoys suspenseful, miraculous rescues. Now, when you see the world seeming to fall apart and society crumbling, civilization collapsing, When you see difficulty in the culture, in the workplace, in the public square, remember that God loves to deliver his people. He does this, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, so that we will stop relying on ourselves and set our hope on the God who raises the dead, the one who delivers both in this life and in the life to come. Is your hope in politics? 
or in political leaders? Is your hope in education? Is your hope in cultural reform or in society? If so, you are sure to be disappointed. If your hope is set on God, the God who raises the dead, the God who delivers his people, you will be firm, immovable, and unshakable. That's strategy number two, escape. Third and finally, the strategy of earnest prayer, which we see with the example of the praying church and specifically with this servant girl, Rhoda. Think of their perspective. James is dead. Peter is in prison as good as dead. And the church was praying. Their first response to tyranny was not to organize a protest. It was to organize a prayer meeting. We learned in our study of Ephesians 6 that the two offensive weapons of the Christian church is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and prayer. The church took up their true weapons. And I love the way John Stott summarized this passage. He said, here then were two communities, the world and the church arrayed against one another, each wielding an appropriate weapon. On the one side was the authority of Herod, the power of the sword and the authority of the prison. On the other side, the church turned to prayer, which is the only power which the powerless have. And they may have been powerless, seemingly, but their praying was powerful. Let's read verse 5 again. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Luke tells us they were making earnest prayer for Peter. That is, they were praying fervently, intensely, strenuously, desperately They were praying with all their energy, with everything within them. That word earnest is the same word that Luke used in his gospel to describe Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane for the cup of God's wrath to pass from him. This was a serious prayer meeting. These were blood-earnest prayers. And before their knees came up off the ground, before they said their final amen, before they sang the closing doxology, there was a knock on the door with the answer to their prayers. Peter, whom they had been praying for, was outside knocking. And what's amazing is they don't believe it. This servant girl, Rhoda, is answering the door and she tells them she recognizes Peter's voice And they don't think it's possible. They think she's out of her mind. They would rather believe some Jewish superstition about maybe this is Peter's guardian angel than believe that God had actually done the impossible and rescued Peter. But Rhoda, in her joy, persists. And finally, they open up the door and Peter comes in, interrupting their prayer meeting with the answer to their prayers. So let me ask you, when trouble comes... When difficulty comes, is prayer your first instinct? Is it your first instinct to get on your knees and pray? To gather with other believers to pray? Is gathering together with your fellow Christians to pray a major part of your life? Or is it near the bottom of your priority list? Or maybe you pray and you even pray earnestly, but you don't pray expectantly, actually expecting the Lord to answer them. 
Do you realize that God is more willing to answer your prayers than you are to pray? He is more willing to open than we are to knock, more willing to be found than we are to seek, more willing to give than we are to ask. Our God is the God who hears prayer, the one who does far more abundantly than all we could ask or imagine. The great need of our day is a church that's devoted to prayer. Earlier, I mentioned that John Knox coined the phrase about resisting tyrants and obeying God. And he was a great man of prayer. His famous prayer, give me Scotland or I die. We should be praying, give us Maryville or we die. Give us East Tennessee. One of the main tyrants that Knox dealt with in his life was Mary, Queen of Scots. And she famously said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Could that be said of us? Oh, that tyrants would tremble when God's people gather to pray. And Herod should have trembled because soon enough, Peter was free and Herod was dead. It's amazing to see the result of the church's faithful resistance to tyranny. Though the situation looked hopeless, humanly speaking, it was hopeless. Soon enough, that tyrant was brought down and the church was growing. Read verse 24 again. I love this summary to this story. But the word of God increased and multiplied. When suffering comes, when tyranny rises, don't lose hope. Don't adopt a doom and gloom mindset. Don't adopt a defeat and retreat perspective. The church will flourish and thrive even in the midst of hostility, even through hostility. We've seen that through the book of Acts, opposition and growth, opposition and growth over and over again. And I believe right now we are in the cultural compost bin. That's what I think we're in. The Lord is composting our culture right now. We can all smell the rot, right? What's a compost bin used for? What's compost used for? It's used to help your garden flourish, right? We throw scraps into the compost bin all year, and then in the spring, we put it on the garden, and it helps everything grow, right? Yeah, we may be in the, the cultural compost bin. What is the Lord doing? He's preparing the soil. He's getting ready fertile soil for the gospel to take root and to bear fruit and to flourish. He... I believe we're being set up for a revival and reformation, one we should be praying for and working towards. Endurance, escape, and earnest prayer. These are three strategies for the church to resist tyranny and to obey God. But now I want to talk to those of you who aren't yet Christians. If you have not repented of your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are truly living under tyranny in its most pure form. The tyranny of the world, the flesh, and the devil. You have the tyranny of the flesh, your own sin, this inner tyrant, the, the tyranny of the self. 
Jesus said, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. You have the tyranny of the evil one, of Satan, the one who keeps you enslaved to sin's temptations and the fear of death, Hebrews 2 says. And you have the tyranny of the world. Think about the soldiers from verses 18 and 19, the ones who were put to death because they lost Peter. No doubt they had faithfully served Herod, but when Peter couldn't be found, their lives were thrown away like they were nothing. And that's what happens when you serve self, sin, Satan, the world, mere men. Your life counts for nothing and is thrown away, only to experience the second death in hell. But that doesn't have to be you. You can live and die like James, a man who trusted Christ, who lived for Christ, and ultimately who died falling asleep in Christ. A man who started off as just a normal fisherman and then was given a purpose as a disciple of Jesus Christ. His life mattered. Look to Jesus in faith. He is not like Herod. He's not a petty tyrant who, who takes the life of the righteous. No, he is the humble king, the one who gives his life for his enemies. He doesn't take life. He gives his life for those who don't deserve it so they can come into his kingdom of grace. Bow your knee in submission to this king and you can have the hope of eternal life. You can escape the tyranny of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and you can enter into the liberty and the freedom of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for all of us, as we close, I want you to lift your eyes to the God of your salvation. This passage isn't about James. He was just a man, a sinner like us. This passage isn't about Peter. He was half asleep during his rescue. He can't take credit for that. This passage isn't about the praying church. They didn't even believe their prayers had been answered. No, this passage is about God. This passage shouldn't leave us impressed with them. It should leave us in awe of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the ruler of the kings on the earth, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. May his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would drive it deep into our hearts and into our lives. I pray that we would, we would receive it as what it really is, not as the word of men, but as the word of God, which is at work in us believers. I pray for, for kings and all those who are in high authority that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I pray that you would prepare us as a people to be a light in the darkness. I pray for those here who may not know you, that you would draw them to yourself and they would submit to you as their king and find life in you. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as the true king and only savior. To him be all the glory. Amen.